Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, where we're taking a brief break from The Wise Man's Fear to discuss Patrick Rothfuss's best-centric short story, The Lightning Tree. This short story first appeared in the 2014 anthology Rogues, edited by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dojoy, and will receive a standalone expanded release here uh, just a few days after this drops, so... Ah, uh, like a week? That's a few. Fair. We've actually seen video evidence of Nate Taylor signing it. Nate Taylor's a cool dude. He is. He's also the illustrator for, what is it, The Narrow Road Between Desires? The Narrow Road Between Desires, yes. So given that impending release, we figured it'd be fun to spend a few episodes talking about this original version so that we have something to compare the full release to. Hope you enjoy. All right. Also, because we've pre-ordered it and it should be arriving on or around the 14th, and today is whatever day daylight savings time disrupted everything. So today, as we record, is the 5th. Y'all are going to get this on the 7th, which means that tomorrow is going to suck for me. But <laughs> so that also means that we aren't going to necessarily be done with the recap of the lightning tree before we receive the narrow road between desires, which kind of works out because then it gives all of y'all a chance to have read it that want to, because we are going to talk about it and the differences between the lightning tree and it and so that means that both of us need to have a chance to read it you know things take time and we're old and tired and busy <laughs> all right so our normal disclaimers and spoiler warnings before we begin let's get some disclaimers out of the way first of all we are no way affiliated with patrick rothfuss or his publisher Daw books nor are we affiliated with the publisher of rogues which is bantam second we are spoiling the entirety of The Lightning Tree and probably also talking about Name of the Wind and The Wise Men's Fear. Possibly The Slow Regard of Silent Things, though... Needless to say, beyond this point, there be spoilers. Or here be spoilers. I can read and remember. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the loves that we world exploring. <laughs> <laughs> the loves that we world exploring. There's one for the bloopers. <laughs> or not. I might leave it in. I'm going to do a marathon editing session. Anyway, the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. We're a little punchy. Thanks, Daylight Savings Time. <laughs> Thanks treating our cat like a pawn in the human world experiment of can we make everybody think that it's two o'clock when it's actually one o'clock? He doesn't care. The rumbly in his tumbly says it's food time. I guess it's actually one o'clock if we think it's two o'clock. I'm tired. <laughs> right. Anyway, the lightning tree. All right. So we kick things off with Viet, who is the daughter of the mayor of Noir. And she's got a problem that I think at least the two of us can relate to. She wants to keep a kitten. She's a six-year-old. And she's already tried yelling and screaming and stomping her foot and demanding that she gets to keep her kitten. Now, 
she's also the kind of kid that's like, do you know who my daddy is? Yeah, there's a little bit of spoiled gratitude there. But like I say, we can understand wanting to keep a kitten. We love kittens. In fact, I'm kind of in the mode where I'm like, we want to foster cats. When do we want to do that? I don't know. <laughs> but it would be nice to have another cat. It would. The question is, would that other cat be compatible with Sokka? Which is why we want to foster and not immediately adopt, because we don't want to go through that again. Anyway, back to the story. Yeah. So Fast, of course, is like, okay, you know the rules. And, you know, basically it's a you have to be no taller than this to ride, so to speak. That's a bad thing to say right now. Don't oh, say yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, it sounded like a mistake the moment it came out. <laughs> you have to be no taller than this line to be able to get advice from me. Yeah, I mean, it's unfair to those kids who have early growth spurts. <laughs> yeah, as we will see as we go forward. Anyway, Bast gives very manipulative advice. Essentially, six-year-old, be patient. Carry through this elaborate plan of pretending that you're so upset about not having your kitten that you won't eat. And you're going to just be fine because you're going to have stashed a bunch of food under your bed, but they won't think you're fine. You're just gonna wallow around sad for days and days and days, and then somehow hope that you get to find that kitten again. Yeah, it's making some assumptions. Basically fake a hunger strike until they feel sorry for you. Maybe not even until they feel sorry for you, until they feel worried about you. But what is interesting is the payment that he extracts from Viet, which is the location of the mayor's strongbox key, the secret that Viet once saw her mother kiss the maid. Which I think is kind of okay. And then a favor, which is to fetch Bast two dozen daisies with long stems, a blue ribbon, and two armfuls of gemlings or balsams or touch-me-nots or whatever. So I want to touch back on the why I have a nonchalant okay about the mom kissing the maid. I'm going to assume because of who the author is and because I know his values that he means it all to be consensual because as we go further in this story, you can see some of the cute little flirtations and some of the things that Bast has done that could be considered creepy if non-consensual are a little more consensual than they are portrayed at the beginning. There's context included as you go forward where these little flirtations, these things that, you know, happen within the story, there's kind of a back and forth, push and pull, voyeurism as flirtation and kind of cute and sexy time that I think is adorable considering it doesn't get into explicit territory. And I'm going to also say that polyamory exists. So if the maid is consensually kissing the mom, the dad might know. Everyone might be up and up and honest. And that's okay. And even in that situation, though, it might be the sort of thing where nobody wants it necessarily getting out because of what it might do for social standing and things like that. Right. There might be some secretive element of it that isn't quote sexy that might be covering everybody's butts i think the thing that i keep coming back to is just about anything can be okay if it's consensual for everybody involved and just about anything can be not okay if it's not consensual for everyone involved 
even fairly minor things in the big scheme of things, if it's not done consensually, it can be really problematic. Anyway, let's uh, keep a pen specifically on the flowers because they're going to be important later on this episode. The fun little bit here is uh, when asked who she's picking flowers for, Viet's response will be, it's none of their tupping business because my daddy is the mayor. Using her, do you know who my daddy is, to his advantage. Thanks, Bast. Next, we get our introduction to Reich, who has, up to this point, kind of been a shadowy background figure mentioned only in passing and with maybe a little bit of disdain. Or malice. We know that for whatever reason, he is on the outs with Bast. Apparently, he said something he shouldn't have and also hit a growth spurt. So he's a little too old or a little too tall. Most likely tall. Considering that other kids his age are able to come to the tree still. And he needs Bast's help here. And it's for, compared to what we've seen so far, an actually fairly serious matter. I would not couch it as fairly serious. I would, there is a trigger warning for abuse here. I don't want to make light of any of this. Most of the things that Bast is asked to do or asked to give advice for are kind of frivolous in the long term. In this case, Reich is actually being abused and not just that, but he's got little siblings at home and he's also watched his drunk of a father harm his mother. And it's not so much for himself that he's asking Bast for help. It's for his little sisters. It's for his mother. And I also note that, you know, Bast actually takes this seriously. I mean, he's been very flippant about just about everything up until this point. But here he's actually responding to this with the gravity that it warrants, I think. I'd say, though, it takes him a second because the thing that stands out to me about the interaction at first is he casually throws out that he doesn't think that the kid has been disciplined well enough, like he deserves to be disciplined more, like physically disciplined more, until he finds out for certain that the kid's being abused. Like, there is an attitude of physical discipline being something that works, or at least threats of physical violence works, to keep people in line, children in line. And that's not accurate, true, proven. It just makes the kid afraid of the adults. And then when the kid becomes an adult, they only know how to handle things with violence. And yeah, I remember distinctly being spanked by my dad. And my dad was the parent of the two that was the one that I still have fond memories of, even though he passed when I was 10. But I only remember being spanked like once when I was six. And it wasn't like hard. It was more embarrassing for me than it was about the pain involved. And mind you, like my dad was in his 50s when I was born. So it's in the 80s being in your 50s. And, you know, that's the, the stuff that you grew up with. And that's the discipline way that you were taught. Or a bunch of other instilled ways that you handle children kind of. Like, I guess I hate to say the product of your time, but product of your time does have an effect. 
So Bast is flippant about suggesting that Reich needs more physical discipline until he finds out that Reich has been hurt physically by someone who should be taking care of him. And I think one of the sobering questions that we see here, and I think this is something that speaks a bit to Reich's character, Bast asks Reich if he wants his father dead or gone. And Reich has to think about this for a little bit. While he doesn't necessarily want his father dead, he knows that gone just means there's a chance he'll come back. But he also does not want to be the kind of person who would either directly kill his own father or have someone do it for him. He recognizes that there is a gravity to that decision that that's not the kind of person he wants to be. He does not want to be a killer. He wants to be something else. He wants to be someone who takes care of his family. So I think that was an insightful question to ask. And that also helps us know that this isn't just pure vengeance. This isn't he wants to, you know, try and get back at his father. No, he really just wants a situation where his father never hurts his family again. And he doesn't know what that looks like. That's why he's reaching out for help. And I think Reich, as we come to understand him, is actually a massive sweetheart. Like, he cares for his mom. He cares for his little sisters. And he cares about what kind of person he is, and he takes that very seriously. He doesn't want to be a bully. He doesn't want to be someone who uses his physical power to force other people to do his, his will. He just wants the abuse to stop for himself and for the people that he loves. And he does not want that to change the kind of person that he is into something potentially worse. As a person who grew up with an emotionally abusive and verbally abusive person, occasionally ventured into physical harm, but not, I was, I was bigger than her at the time and was unlikely that she would attempt to hurt me that way. But as a person who grew up with, like as a teenager, dealt with someone with mental instability that led to her being an abusive fork. I would never have physically harmed her or attempted to end her life. But I distinctly remember knowing that if a life-threatening emergency were happening to her, I might not prevent it from happening before I called for authorities. I am not proud of that. But at the same time, I, I just, I needed it to not keep happening. I needed it to stop. I needed, I needed it to not be the consistent thing that happened in my life. To the point where I went from someone who was unpredictable to someone who was very controlling and very predictable, but also not very nice. Again, I wouldn't ever wish harm on another person. And I never went through a situation where there were bruises on my back or, you know, things that were send me to the hospital things. I dealt with things that are like years and years of therapy to go through <laughs> before I can kind of, you know, deal with it and handle like my own challenges due to it. And so reading about a kid who is being harmed is really tough on me. 
And I can definitely see where he's got this huge moral, I don't know what to call it. He wants to protect his family and the way to protect his family is to get rid of one of the members of his family. And he needs help from an adult. And the one adult in the town who treats kids as equals is Bast. That's something that I noticed here. Bast listens to the kids on their own terms and does not judge them or condescend to them. He just takes them at, at face value. And then you compare that with like when Bast is dealing with other adults, it feels like they don't take a whole lot of effort to check on the status of the rest of Reich's family. They just kind of accept that Reich's dad is out hunting and trapping all the time. And okay, what he does on his own time, though, is nobody's business. I think that that happens a lot where if I think about the places that I've lived that are, they have an adjoined wall, an apartment or a townhome or any given thing, or even just people walking by with the windows open. There's no way, no way whatsoever that from when I was 10 till I was 27, that any of the places that I lived with an adjoined wall or close neighbors there is no way that people did not hear me have anxiety attacks, me and whomever I was living with between the two of them, screaming at one another, people calling me names, people swearing at me. I don't know exactly what my response was anymore, but I'm pretty sure that it didn't involve me just kind of taking it. But there is no way that every single person who lived near or around us didn't know. And yet, no one did anything to help. They all just, that's between the two of them. I can't do anything about it. The only time I can remember something that may have been a subtle attempt at helping was having a pamphlet stuffed in between the handle of my door and the door jam. That was something about religious counseling. And for all you know, that could have just been something they put on every door. Right, exactly. So like, people are very hesitant to step into business that is not their own if they don't know how to handle it. And as we see, that sort of code of silence benefits abusers. It does. And it is a credit to Bast that he represents a safe space, an exception from that code, where people can actually... You know, the kids who are in this society and in most societies, in fact, some of the least privileged people out there whose word is generally doubted. They're not considered to be reliable witnesses. When they talk about abuses, they are often not believed, you know, and especially in a society that is sort of the pseudo medieval society at Noir, we can definitely see where Bast is a really important person to have on these kids side. So Bast does agree to take the case and he knows it's not going to be easy and he's going to charge Reich heavily for this, but he does agree that none of the cost will fall on Reich's family. This is something that Reich is doing willingly of his own volition and he will not see his family penalized for it. So he is taking responsibility for this choice. Again, this tells us a little bit about who Reich is as a person. Like I say, He's actually a pretty big sweetheart. 
Do you have a list of what the requirements that Bast extracts from him are? First ask, is a river stone with a hole in it dry on the shore? A fairy stone, as it's also known. So Reich heads off for this, and meanwhile, Braun, the baker's kid, returns with two sweet buns on a handkerchief. Bast eats one and sets the second aside. Then Viet returns with the flowers and a fine blue ribbon, and uh, Bast weaves the daisies into a crown, threading the ribbon between the stems. So then Bast ends up making a bindle from his shirt, and then he stuffs in the touch-me-nots, the handkerchief, and the crown so that he can carry them all together and conveniently go around shirtless, which I, I don't think he minds. I think he does that on purpose. Yes. So he makes his way to Emberly's bathing spot and uh, manages to catch her as she starts her bath, and he climbs up into a tree and starts sending the little touch-me-nots down the stream. And he's actually made them change color from yellow and reds to blue. And I think that's to suit Emberly because I think he's aware that blue is her color. He is a clever observer. I wonder if this is a case of like, this is just a natural chemical reaction that these flowers might have to pH balance in the water or whatever, or to the, the acidity on his breath or whatever. I mean, hydrangeas do change color depending on what you put in the soil for them because they will be either be blue or pink or white depending on the pH level. This, I think, is way more implied to be fey magic. Fey magic is what we think of when we think of high magic. When we think of being able to manipulate nature and to be able to create wonder. And I think that's more best style than doing anything alchemical, much to Kvothe's chagrin. So here's the other question. Do you think that this is glamoury or grammary? I think it's likely that he changed what is and not what it appears to be. So grammary, always worthwhile conversation to have in these sorts of things. <laughs> so at first, Emberly is kind of enchanted by these petals that are floating down the stream towards her. And this is all interrupted when Bass falls out of the tree. Do you think that he fell out of the tree on purpose? I kind of get the impression that he does nothing by accident. That's true. I also think that when it comes to these flirtations, none of them are accidental. None of them have details that should be ignored. One of said details is that... Emberly dresses in cornflower blue. Bast has changed all of these petals upstream to being a pretty blue for her. Bast climbs a tree and then mysteriously falls out of it. I don't think that that was by accident. But there are some other details that are stated in here as well that call back to when Bast took his bath. Specifically, she scampered into the water, making a series of small dismayed cries at the chill of it. They were, on consideration, not really similar to a raven's at all, though they could perhaps be slightly like a heron's. And during Bast's bath, say that ten times fast, don't, uh, <laughs> there was a chortle that reminded him of the noise a heron might make, which means... What's good for the gander is also good for the goose. There is definitely a little bit of that. And I think also to go back to the nothing by accident here, 
even just where Bast lands upon falling from the tree is rather telling, because he lands on a patch of soft turf that cushions the fall quite easily. You know, if he was just a little bit to one side, it would have been just mud. To the other side, it would have been rocks. Okay, I gotta say, though, this little bit reminds me of something from real life that happened, not to us, but to our cat Dax. When he fell off of our loft onto the couch and managed to hit just the soft cushions and not any of the more painful things that he could have hit. Like my computer? Right. I knew, I knew at some point that that poor cat was going to probably fall off the loft. I just had a feeling. And you thought I was nuts. But we had a very wide kind of rail for where the loft was. And if he was careful, he'd be fine. But he had a habit of going up the railing on the stairs and then kind of climbing up around to the loft area and scaring the ever-loving crap out of me. And then one day, he slipped. And I was so scared for him. I was so scared for him, the little guy. I mean, I'm so glad he landed on the couch. He could have landed a whole bunch of other places and been so hurt. Yeah, that little orange monster. Yeah, he was our first kitty together. He was a real character. We loved him. But yes, very much Bast energy. So... Emberly hears this commotion and approaches, and Bass gifts her with a sweet roll, and then also this crown that he has made. And then the punchline, did you steal my soap? <laughs> <laughs> Bast has realized that Emberly now smells a lot like honeysuckle, which is indeed his soap. The two of them then share a kiss. Again, this is all why I think this is very consensual, like, it's all the flirtation, all of the cuteness is presented as something that both parties want. And the other thing about it is that no one seems upset or jealous over the fact that Bast is flirtatious with everyone, or at least all of the women, usually the young women, but like literally all of the women. So then Bast goes off to Martin Still, where he discovers an assortment of jugs, canning jars, and other bottles all full and all unlabeled. <laughs> and all of this equipment makes him wish that he actually had read Kellum Tintore. So he takes one of the one of the jugs and takes a swig, kind of expecting to find just moonshine. And it turns out it's actually good. Right? He he detects notes of apples and barley, and there's actual complexity here, actual flavor. This isn't just something that's constructed to get you drunk. It's it's not paint thinner. No, this is actually something that someone would drink and enjoy, not just enjoy the feeling afterwards. And so now he really actually starts getting curious because the stuff in his oh-so-boring book has real-world application. So he goes back and he wants to just go find the book and take a seat and read for once. So when Bast returns to the Waystone after having a, a bit of consultation with his chemistry book, first thing Quoth asks is if he's brought the carrots. And also, have you been drinking? No, and yes. Actually, research. <laughs> At this point, we come to understand that Bast and Martin have a bit of a contentious relationship. Bast calls him Crazy Martin, though Quoth rejects this assertion. I also kind of wonder, because there is... 
a quality to Noir that feels a little bit storybookish, where I kind of wonder if the characters in Noir are some of the other people from The Name of the Wind or The Wise Man's Fear. Because Crazy Martin, while I understand that you're like, I think that that's being played up because George R. R. Martin has something to do with this particular anthology, but he did appear in The Name of the Wind. I don't know if there's a direct correlation here or not. But Martin strikes me as someone who is eccentric, much in the same way that Elodin is. And I wonder, because I've seen other people go through the town in the books that kind of feel similar in characterization to like Sim or Will. And I, I wonder if there are elements of people whose memory have been altered and replaced, or in the case of Elodin, like Elodin wouldn't give a crap. He'd just play along. Yeah, he probably would just enjoy hanging out, making awesome liquors and just having a good time. Or, I mean, it could be one of the chemistry teachers. I also notice here, though, that Kvothe offers a much more charitable understanding of Martin than Bast gives him. Yes. Like, he says, hey, you know, he's had some hard times. He experienced some things while he was serving in the army that changed him, and he's endured a lot, so I'm not going to judge him. I'm not going to call him crazy. I think also some of this comes from Kvothe's own experience with madness. He's experienced, you know, whether because of grief or loss or just the experiences he's had in his life. Or a plumb bob. Right. I mean, like all of these things that if you didn't know, you might judge him crazy. And that's that's a heavy label to wear. And that is something that I think does a disservice to the human being underneath that label. And I really appreciate Kvothe saying, you know... He did actually apologize to you for the time when he yelled at you. And that's not something that he does for most people. I think he's been working on himself. Here, Bast proposes that uh, perhaps they could let Martin pay his tab with some of his brews. And then actually talks about, hey, you know, this isn't Hillwine. Hillwine is usually mostly just paint thinner <laughs> and acetone. You don't want that. And, and then Kvothe is in shocked to ask like well how did you know that he's well i read about it in kellum tinture <laughs> which impresses Kvothe quite a bit here his charge actually did his homework for once i don't know if it impressed him i think that it at least validated Kvothe's desire to make fast read boring books <laughs> and yes i did find a little metatextual nod to germ here where uh where Kvothe says, get five or six, it's getting cold at night, winter's coming. Referring to bottles of liquor, but he's also making Bast do it. He's making the person who is kind of afraid of Martin deal with Martin to humanize Martin. And then the line after that, it's getting cold at night, winter's coming, I'm sure Martin will be flattered. I believe you when you say that he isn't strictly based on this, but I do think that there is no way that Patrick Rothfuss didn't have a fun little giggle at that little exchange, knowing who was editing. But yeah, it's finding some humanity for Martin, something that Martin is legitimately good at and has value to society that goes beyond just money. And I really enjoyed that little bit. So 
So when Bast returns to the lightning tree, Reich is there and he's there early with the river stone. Reich is serious about this. This wasn't a lark and he didn't do any complaints or anything like that at all. He just wanted to make sure he understood the bill and he fit it. The next thing that Bast needs is a needle borrowed from a house where no men live. Now, it can't be bought or stolen. It has to be lent. This is a little bit of a snipe hunt, I think. There's a little bit of that. And, you know, there's a little bit of back and forth as they try and figure out what qualifies in this case. I'd also like to point out, though, that I think a lot of fairy payment or cost is a snipe hunt on purpose. I think that the price exacted for the services is a little bit of, and I, I don't love this part about Guardians of the Galaxy, even though it's funny if you don't think too hard about it, which is the stealing people's prosthetics that Rocket does not need, because that is a harmful thing to instill upon people who rely on said prosthetics, but not to be a complete killjoy. I think in some cases, these are tests that Bast is giving these kids to make sure they're serious about the thing that they say they want more than a strict requirement because Bast has to think on his feet when Wright comes up with an answer quickly. Well, and I think also it's worth noting here that if we look at this particular requirement through that lens of a test, what this means is it's testing Reich's ability to respect consent from someone who may not necessarily be guaranteed to be friendly at first blush to him. You know, like someone who does not particularly care for men, so you got one strike against you. How are you going to deal with this person respectfully? And how are you going to work with them to get what you want or need? Again, this is basically testing his ability to behave with character, to not be a bully. To be a diplomat. Yeah. To be someone who's actually serious about building a connection. If we were to put this in D&D terms, it would be diplomacy or persuasion. Exactly. No lying, no deception, no thievery, no intimidation. Just, I need to borrow this from you, and how can I get you to agree to do this on your own without me forcing it? And it's also worth noting here, Reich doesn't argue with this at all. Like he just says, okay, we've identified the, the right person to go ask. It's going to be old man, even though she doesn't really like me, but I'll, I'll do it. You know, he, he doesn't complain. He just accepts it and goes. And I think, again, this speaks to one, Reich's character, and two, the seriousness of the situation. So then Bast knows that he needs carrots, and he heads off to pay a visit to Reich's mother, Nettie. We learn that Reich's father, Jessam, is off hunting and trapping while Nettie stays home to care for the children. Bast is there under the pretense of inquiring about potential work, agreeing to split wood in exchange for carrots. And he is still flirtatious and delightful, which I think in some instances make the town folk think he's slow, which I think is an insulting way of putting it, but whatever. And so because of the way that the society works, especially for like married women who are apparently the property of their husband, eh, 
it is more respectful and less suspicious if Bast asks about whether Jessam needs help. Jessam needs to hire someone or if Jessam can do with any help. And Bast already knows that the drunkard's off in the deer blind somewhere, probably drinking away any scrap of money that the family has. And come to find out, Nettie is alone with her children, having to take care of a little baby. And the little kid is dealing with helping her mom take care of the baby. It takes a while before Bast resorts to, is there anything I can help you with? You know, I see you have beehives. Is there something that I can do to help you with that? Or you have goats. Is there anything I can help with? And then he's like, oh no, my kid takes care of stuff. Or we had to sell the things that made me happy in so far as the beehives that she was making candles from. Anything that would bring her life fulfillment besides being a mother. So she's perpetually self-sacrificing. And then Bass just brings up, but my, my boss wants me to bring home carrots? I only need like six of them. And it makes Nettie laugh so hard. And she's just like, carrots? Really? Carrots? That's all you want? Okay. Go chop wood. And he puts on a little bit of a cheesecake show for it. Right. I think he's actually trying to cheer her up. And I think the only way that he knows to cheer people up, especially of the woman variety of people is to take his shirt off. I, I think there's a little bit of big Ricky Matsui energy to go unsleeping city on this. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think the best part about how Bast is characterized here is that instead of just being like, I need to stare at all the girls, it's I want to provide a show and get to have a show in return or not. He does, I think, enjoy showing off, though. Yes. What I mean about is he doesn't necessarily need the return. Yeah. I, I think he, he cares a lot about bringing delight to other people. And I think that kind of excites him a bit. He likes being watched. <laughs> so then he offers to help her with her bees because he's handy with honey. Then it kind of ends with, I have something to show you. And we have no idea what. We'll come back to that next time. Maybe. I don't know if it's discussed ever. What I do appreciate is that Bast points out the things about Nettie that are beautiful. His internal monologue is, I know that she's been through some hard times. I know that she's tired and that she's had children and that, you know, she's a little older than my normal object of infatuation, shall we say. But she's quite lovely in her own way. And there's nothing derogatory about how he thinks of her. And I think the reason that he chose to go to her is to check on her and kind of get a sense of whether or not Reich is exaggerating. Although any time that a kid has bruises that you can tell her from abuse, it's not exaggeration. You should always believe an abuse victim. I think he's probably trying to figure out what is the best way to accomplish this task in a way that will actually benefit the whole family. Yes. I think there's a little bit of trying to get the lay of the land, so to speak, which oftentimes I think we hear stories of people getting involved in these sorts of cases without considering how they're actually 
impacting everybody involved. It's like when those home improvement shows roll through and tear down the family home and give them a gigantic mansion on their property and increase not only the family's tax burden, but also the tax burden of the entire neighborhood. Yeah, and these things that can be done with good intentions can sometimes have fairly negative repercussions down the line if done improperly. Not just for the people you're trying to help, but also the people around them, and there can be a lot of collateral damage. You know, calling the cops on someone who is abusing their spouse seems like the right thing to do at the time, but knowing the way the legal system ends up working out, it may only exacerbate matters. Right. Don't call the cops if you're not willing to provide shelter for the victim of the abuse. Or you're not able to. Right. I mean, I'm not going to say don't call the cops. I'm going to think about your consequences because I'm not going to say don't call the cops. In a situation where someone needs to be protected like that, there needs to be, and this is a, a systematic problem, there needs to be a sort of way to follow up or guaranteed allocation of funds for following up and really actually helping the abuse victim and not just taking away a source of pain that might also be a source of income or a source of livelihood. Like it's a, it's a devil's bargain. It's not something that can really be kind of surgically removed. Like if I had been taken from my abuser, my quote, parent, and placed into the foster system, it would have ripped me out of a lot of my social network, my social support. This was also at a time when cell phones weren't a thing. And so email was a, just in its infancy and messenger was in its infancy. On one hand, you're doing them a huge service. And on the other hand, you're doing them a huge disservice. And as soon as the situation is put back into this guy's been released, the amount of rage that has been caused can be so much more detrimental to the person dealing with the abuse. And I'm not saying that there is a perfect solution and I don't know what to suggest as a better one other than we need to fund with our tax dollars better social safety nets for people who need it. Well, and I would say just in general, across the board. So yeah, I think really what this is, is I think Bast trying to do his due diligence to make sure that he knows exactly what the consequences of his actions will be. So I think with that, we're ready for our seven words. So I had a bunch of them. Oh, we're not doing a recommended thing? Oh, we can do a recommended thing. We haven't done it in the past, but... Uh, oh, we haven't done them in the past? Not for this? these. Oh, okay. Not for this series. I'm a little bit off of... We've, we haven't recorded since. Like, oh, I don't want to even think about it. Yeah. All right. Well, I do actually have a brief recommendation. Okay. So I've posted about this on our Discord, but I need to tell every single one of you that if you like Bast and Cheesecake, and by Cheesecake, I mean shirtless pictures of Bast, there is on World Builders website, their store, a calendar that is basically a pinup calendar of Bast. Like, it's amazing. It's great. There are poses that are reminiscent of like Flashdance or Deadpool if you're 
wanting to to take something that was already an homage to Flashdance. There are just adorable shirtless bass being a flirt. And I think that it is a wonderful thing that they've put out there and that everyone who really enjoys Bast as a complete flirt just would probably benefit from at least knowing that this exists, if not purchasing it. And yay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to say that my recommended thing right now is also if you like the Kingkiller Chronicle and want some merch from it, if that's something that you like for holiday gifting, go to World Builders. Their store has not just Patrick Rothfuss merch, but like other wonderful authors as well. And it's great to support your favorite authors and your favorite creators and, you know, help silly projects like a Bast pinup calendar exist. It's a good wreck. Now we can do seven words. All right. So I've got a lot of them. First, we have very well, then you know the rules. And so do I. And mind you, yours is from the book. Yes. I've got it is actually at least a little. I don't know that that's a good seven words. I'm not saying these are all good, but I found a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have if he says no, don't be angry, but remember to act tired. No playing. Then I saw mama kissing the maid once. Then we live in the ash of nowhere. I just needed to talk to you. I never knew my ma could sing. That one's heartbreaking because yeah. it's Reich saying when we thought that my father had fallen out of his tree blind and was never coming back. It was the happiest time that we've had as a family. I didn't know what my mom looked like when she was happy. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that she would sing when she was happy. Then we have, if he goes, he won't stay away. Then we have, do you want my help or not? Then we've got, you're so much lovelier than I'd imagined. And then, there is something of apples about it. Then, ah, Bast, have you brought the carrots? <clears throat> and then we have, have you actually been reading Kellum Tenture? Then, where did you get some to taste? Then we have, it's getting cold at night. Winter's coming. Yeah, I mean, that's the point at which you're like, yeah, you're going to hit me in the face with the fact that Bast stole from Martin. <laughs> she has to lend it to you. Then, call me if she starts to fuss. And finally, we have... I'm a dab hand with honey, too. Hmm. What one's your favorite? I think my favorite is, uh, you're so much lovelier than I'd imagined. Ah, I think mine was the reference to winter is coming. Yeah, that one is pretty funny, too. Anyway, I have two. They both happened today because I kind of forgot that we were doing this. Oops. <laughs> well, not that we were recording, but that we did the seven words and that it was my turn to do the seven words from life. Oops. 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 So the first one I'm going to reference is actually not my seven words, but I think it's still worth kind of having a little laugh over, mostly because you and I spent a decent amount of time before recording going, where did we put the book? Uh-oh. So that one is, we have exhausted all the normal spots. Because we went looking all around the house, <laughs> trying to find a rather large book, actually. Turns out it was in my suitcase. Which is weird because you didn't take it with you. Right. Like I say, we exhausted all the normal spots. <laughs> it was under a bunch of paperwork, which was on top of a laundry bag, 
which was on top of your closed suitcase with what you insist are clean clothes that were stuffed in a suitcase with dirty clothes that I still need to have access to clean. So what's your other seven words? <laughs> so the seven words that I'm actually going to claim as my seven words of the week, and I say week knowing that we haven't put anything out in a month, sorry. Get a load of this little shirt head. <laughs> this of course is in reference to Sokka, who woke me up this morning by attacking my face. He has not handled the time change well. Let's put it that way. He's like, what do you mean you're making me wait another hour for my food? I don't understand. This isn't okay. Yeah, he was not happy with me. Now, granted, he batted at your face because we are trying to keep him from digging into the space between the bed frame and the slats so that he won't destroy the slats. And it is... A challenge, shall we say. Yes, it is. So. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we continue our break and spend some more time finishing up the lightning tree. I think we're actually going to get to the end of the lightning tree next time, which means we should hopefully be able to take some time to read the narrow road between desires. It's not going to be that long. And then we can maybe give our initial thoughts and go into a breakdown of it and a comparison between it and the lightning tree. Sounds like fun. So we would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. I would say audio production and social media coordination, but uh, let's face it, I haven't been on the socials. I'm bad at that, and I'm tired, and Twitter sucks. Mostly we're on Discord now. Come hang out with us. The link is in the description and other places. I don't know. It's also on our Patreon, I believe. I'm sure it is. And then writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, and have the means to do so, or just want to check out and see if we have a link to the Discord somewhere on it, come visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Honestly, I don't think you have to pay to see most of it, because it releases to the public pretty much on the same day that the podcast does, and I do a little bit of a, a write-up talking about how the behind-the-scenes went. It's kind of interesting if I do say so myself. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. making sure we're actually recording because that could be terrible. Yep. We're out of practice! It's over 9,000! <laughs>